electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Scott, and hi, everybody. On this Monday, here's what's ahead. It's the rally that Wall Street certainly didn't see coming. Strategists have been caught flat-footed by the market's massive rebound, but some parts of the market are now extremely overbought. We will have the very latest. Plus, we're used to saying just Google it, but could we soon be hearing about iSearch? Why one analyst says Apple needs to buy a search engine. And there's been a huge surge in trading shares of private companies. What that's telling us about the companies on deck to go public. And that rank continues to grow every day. We begin with today's rally, though. Dom Chu is here with those numbers. Hi, Dom. A statistically improbable rally. Like you said, Kelly, many parts of the market right now into that overbought territory. That's what traders call it when things go too far, too fast, one way or the other. Take a look at the Dow. Right now up 235 points. At the highs of the day, we were up 315 points. So we're still in solidly green territory. And we're going to put the S&P up half a percent in the NASDAQ. It gets a gold star today because it makes a new record high again in today's trading. One of the stocks that's really powering most of the Dow's gains today, shares of aerospace giant Boeing, you can see here up by $23, 11, 12 percent gains, some new analyst coverage driving a lot of that. But remember, from the highs that we saw last year down here, it lost 77 percent of its value. It is now rebounded from here about just a Check out, it's 160% from here. Remember, it was an $89 stock at the lows. And then three stocks to keep an eye on. Thematic trades, news driving. American Airlines, the airline momentum continues to the upside. Marathon Oil, that beaten down energy sector, getting a huge bid. And then Beyond Meat, signing a new deal for a distribution agreement with a Chinese-based food distributor. That's powering those gains. So three stocks to watch. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. Some big moves there. Dom, thanks very much. Well, last month's surprising jobs gain has some economists rethinking their growth outlooks for the second half of the year and the speed with which the economy can rebound. This comes even as we just learned that the U.S. officially entered a recession in February. Steve Leesman joins me now with more. Hi, Steve. Yeah, Kelly, two different uh, uh, contradictory uh, news developments there. Let's start off. It is official. The NBER, the National Bureau for Economic Research, they're the ones who do this. They have declared that we are now in a recession. The recession started in February 2020 when the last expansion hit its peak. The NBER says the expansion lasted 128 months, was the longest in history. It began in June 2009. Here's the statement, and it's an unusual statement from the NBER. They say, the committee recognizes that the pandemic and the public health response have resulted in a downturn with different characteristics and dynamics than prior recessions. Nonetheless, it concluded that the unprecedented magnitude of the decline in employment and production and its broad reach across the economy warrants the designation of this episode as a recession even if it turns out to be briefer than earlier contractions. Just a quick word. This is a very fast determination by the NBER. The last two recessions, it took 11 months from the beginning, and the one before that, eight months before it declared a recession. It's only four months now. And it happens, as Kelly just told us, as economists are cheered by the recent jobs report, and they're thinking that there's upside for the economy. Goldman Sachs writing, quote, we expect growth data in the U.S. and Europe to turn more clearly positive in the coming weeks. 
And J.P. Morgan writes, the latest employment numbers reinforce the sense of upside risk to the second quarter. So clearly, Kelly, the NBR looks in the rearview mirror, finds out, determines for a whole bunch of reasons, academic policy and otherwise, when the recession started. And we'll see how quickly or how fast or how short or brief they believe this recession should can be or will be because economists already are starting to upgrade. UBS, in fact, upgraded its second quarter growth forecast by five percentage points, but still a deep downturn expected in the second quarter. Steve, I do think that people should note that the recession starting in February is a little bit earlier than most of the shutdowns hit. And, you know, we could go into all of the signs that there was already some weakness. People said maybe it was actually because China was weak, that demand was falling because they were dealing with COVID. But you know, they did move quickly to say it was Feb. And, and anyway, so Feb now is the starting point. Can you just elaborate quickly on what people are saying now for the rest of the year, given what we learned on Friday? Where are we in terms of what GDP looks like? Okay, we have a full screen in the back. That is a uh, public message to the control room. Thank you very much, guys. That looks at the Fed survey and the growth forecast. This is not our regular rapid update. We do this every six weeks. And what you see is that they're now at a 29% decline for the second quarter. Um, and, and that's a little bit worse than it was back when we did the survey in April. And then you see a rebound forecast for the third quarter and the fourth quarter. We don't get it all back, Kelly. So net on the year, we're looking for a 5% GDP decline when you take in the huge decline and then you put, you don't see the full year forecast on the screen there. But net, if you add in the two quarters of decline and the two quarters of increase that we'll have had this year, the expectation is a 5% decline for the full year. All right. Still pretty, uh, pretty deep by historical standards. That's for sure. Steve, thanks yes. so much. Appreciate it. Steve Leesman with all of the latest there on the econ front. Well, it wasn't just the economist caught by surprise by the better news lately. As the market's rebound continues, the S&P is leaving strategist targets in the dust by historic proportions. Here to discuss are Jason Brady, the CEO and president of Thornburg Investment Management, and Margie Patel, the senior portfolio manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management. So welcome to you both. And Jason, this, this gap between the average estimate and where uh, the market is now is, I think, the widest in maybe 20 years. Um, my concern is that as the street kind of catches up to where we are, usually that's an indication that the, the highs are in. I think that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at the pathway of forecasts, it's, it's just always following behind where the market is. You know, as we talk to clients, what we're speaking to them about is, is trying to focus their attention a little bit more on some leading indicators or some inputs to some of these uh, market levels. And for us, one of those big inputs is, is interest rates. So interest rates have gone up quite a lot. And what that's meant is more recently, some of this rally has looked a little bit more like 2018 than the early part of the rally in 2020, which has been cyclicals and small caps and really kind of the survivors of the market, as well as a, a very different tone in credit. So focusing on interest rates actually gives you some, some idea of what's going on out there. Okay, Margie, do you have any thoughts on rates? I mean, we did see a big move up towards 1% in the 10-year last week. No, I think that rates, anything under 1% is really immaterial. Uh, I think these rates are very, very low and unlikely to go higher for the foreseeable future major in years. And so that really says the pendulum is still over on the equity side for where returns will be. Where would you uh, sort of recommend clients be, Margie? Broad exposure to the S&P? Are you concerned after this rebound that we could have a sideways phase for some time? 
Well, I think that the uh, fundamental uh, grossy companies are still going to maintain the lead. So I think sectors like technology, where you have proven leaders, are still going to hold that lead. Uh, healthcare is another sector that we think secularly has a lot going for it. And some selected industrials, particularly defense companies, we think will also hmm. power through this uh, decline that we're in right now. And I think that those stocks will have very attractive returns and won't be too badly hurt by the economic slowdown from the uh, the virus. Interesting. I want to ask you both about prospects for more relief money, uh, stimulus money that could be in the works by Congress. Uh, Tom Block is saying today that the protests, uh, the fact that the unemployment number has been a little bit better, clouds the prospects for the next bill. Jason, if so, if that's held up over you know politics or less urgency because the economy has improved, what do you think that would mean for the markets and does it concern you? I mean, it, it certainly concerns me in the context of, uh, of, of fiscal response. But what we've really seen, in my view, and in, in Thornburg's view, is, is the monetary response be, be driving. So the Fed came in in early April to try to help out with some liquidity problems, and they ended up creating a water park. So for me, as I look at their response function, it's, it's not nearly as political, politically driven and therefore a much bigger part of what the market reaction is going forward. With regard to rates and those levels, I, I agree with, with, with Margie in the context of the Fed not allowing that, those rates to go much higher. And we'll get more data on that or thoughts on that on Wednesday. Well, that's the first time I've heard someone say there's so much liquidity, it's a water park, but it's probably an apt analogy. Margie, let me bring you in with the same question. So a lot of people have pinned their hopes for state and local relief on this phase four bill. We've seen state and local governments hemorrhaging jobs already, obviously could get worse. Um, also, I don't know where we are in the liability shield and, and where that's included. Um, what are your expectations for the next big relief bill from Congress and, and what happens if it now gets held up? Well, I think the momentum on both sides is very strong for some kind of relief bill, some hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, who can say exactly where it'll be directed? But more fundamentally, when the Fed came in earlier in this year and absolutely backstopped the market, the liquidity part of the market, the short-term part of the market, that was absolutely key to keeping the economy from completely collapsing. All the trillions of dollars they put in really swamps whatever another additional bill of more spending will be. So at the margin, I don't think that bill is as important as what the Fed's already done to allow companies to survive so they can survive until we actually have growth in a quarter or two. Final question, Margie. Is it your expectation the Fed would back off any time here? I mean, both of you have said, look, what happens on the fiscal side is not nearly as important as what the Fed does next. And at this point, are we just waiting to see how much everything that they've already done uh, does for the rebound? Are you pricing a lot on kind of the Main Street money that's basically just starting to flow through here? Or do, do you think they start to back off? Well, the Fed has already indicated they're going to reduce very modestly some of their purchase schedules, and I think they're going to be watching very, very carefully to be very proactive. They don't want to repeat the mistakes they made in 08 in withholding liquidity, and I think they're at the ready to do whatever they need to do to help provide the economy enough cash to uh, keep companies from having liquidity crises and making the, the downturn worse. All right. Margie Patel, Jason Brady, thanks so much. Appreciate having both of you here today. Thanks. Sharing your thoughts on this market. Coming up, last week was the busiest of the year for the IPO market, and the private market has been a flurry of activity as well. What that could be telling us about the IPOs to come is ahead. Plus, to the extreme, as stocks continue to climb, a number of areas are starting to flash some warning signs they've hit overstretched territory. We'll break that down. Stay with us here. We're back in two.
This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. After the busiest week of the year so far for IPOs, another eight companies are set to go public this week. And in just the past hour, insurance company Lemonade announced its IPO plans, hoping to raise up to $100 million. My next guest says he's seeing a surge in demand for pre-IPO shares in general. For more, I'm joined by Atish Davda, the founder and CEO of EquityZen. It's good to see you, uh, Atish. Welcome back. Yeah, we get to be back. What do, what do you think is the main takeaway from the flurry of activity in May especially as investors started to, to do a lot of trading in these private shares? You know, I think there's a window that both the investors as well as the issuers are seeing. Uh, you know, I think we had obviously the uh, a very, very tight market uh, in, you know, at the end of March, early April, where there was just a lot of questions that were unanswered. I think what we're seeing now with the positive news coming out of big cities like New York is, okay, well, it seems like, you know, in these localities, we do have a little bit better, uh, you know, trend on the numbers. And I think what that means for issuers is, well, I've got a window between June and effectively the backstop of November, where if I'm going to go public right now with the current administration, with the with the known of the current administration, uh, then I better get moving. And that's why I think we're seeing a lot of activity in the IPO market, which I don't think will last more than a couple of months. Interesting. Why don't you think it'll last? Well, I think, uh, you know, if you take a look at election years, uh, you uh, always have the volatility kind of leading up to uh, the election. And volatility is typically a killer for IPOs. It's also a big reason why 2020, which was going to see companies like Airbnb go public, uh, you know, basically see a lot of companies peel back. Now, Airbnb happens to be in the travel sector, uh, sector pretty hard hit by the COVID, um, uh, you know, pandemic. But I think what we're seeing is the flip side of that is that there's a lot of sectors that are benefiting from the new normal that we're all operating within. And I think some of those companies are going to try and, you know, take advantage of this opportunity. Do you think it's the companies that are strong that are rushing to go public now or the ones that are weak and really need the funding? You know, I think there's a lot of companies that either go public right now or wait it out until 2021, 2022. Uh, I think the strong companies, the ones that can weather the storm in the private markets, if they had all their ducks in a row and they were ready to go public, it's a matter of kind of pushing it back three months or pushing it forward three months. I think we're going to see that group of companies go public. Outside of that, if you're a weak company, unless you've got profitability going for you, unless the the new normal post-pandemic world is going to be in your favor, uh, I just I just don't see how a lo- money-losing company is going to be received by the public market. So, no, I think it's a strong one and the ones that are really making a bet that COVID is going to change the way work operates from now onward. Yeah, and you, as you say, the bar to go public has just increased as a result of this. And there are some industries, workplace productivity, gaming, biotech security. I mean, there's a ton of biotech companies going public again this week. That's right. I think what we're seeing is 
The bar to go public has gone up again. Investors want to see either a ton of growth or ideally growth and profitability. Uh, and frankly, I think there are some companies that can deliver that. Uh, and I think the question is, you know, we just saw Lemonade being reported uh, who is going to go public soon. It's a tech driven insurance company. Tremendous amount of growth doesn't make money. Uh, their EBITDA margins are negative, but they are moving in the right direction. I think what remains to be seen is you've got a lot of investors who've been sitting hungry for some growth, hungry for positive EBITDA companies. How will they receive a firm that has one, which is growth, but not the other, which is profitability? I can tell you by looking at equities and platform, which trades in pre-IPO stocks, we've seen a tremendous amount of demand uh, spike up, both on the sell and the buy side in the last two months, uh, about 40% higher. And that's, uh, that's, that's not a single day event. That's not a single week event. We're talking about a monthly average that has just continued to go up. So personally, I think there's a lot of investors waiting for good opportunities to come around. And, you know, we'll have to see if the IPO market can continue to deliver yeah. in what I think is going to be a two to three month period. Final question. I'm curious how the pricing looks on the private market for a lot of these different uh, pre-IPO names. So Airbnb, for instance, do you know how much that's down peak to trough? You know, I think the pricing power has absolutely shifted from the sellers to the buyers. You know, Equities then publishes this thing called the Private Sentiment Index. And if you take a look at the easy MSI, what you see there is effectively a market sentiment index. And what you see there is that it is at an all-time low, certainly over the last two years. And honestly, if you go all the way back to 2016, that's so a five-year low. And what that means is that trades are still getting done, but the buyers are, uh, you know, seeing a lot of the power. They're dragging the price down. Uh, which is which, which which makes sense if you take a look at uh, what's going on in the world. Uh, a little bit different from what's going on in the public markets because there's no Fed in the private market. Interesting. Something's gone now. Interesting. Atish, thanks so much. It's always good to check in with you. Thanks, Atish Dabda on what looks like another busy week here in the IPO market. <laughs> Coming up, New York City is beginning to reopen its doors today with more than 200,000 people expected to go back to work. A look at what it'll mean for the economy and what comes next. And the number one Apple analyst on the street says maybe it's time for the company to buy its own search engine. Which one? He'll join us. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check on the markets for you. Here are the major averages. The Dow's up 263 points this hour, about 50 points off the highs of the session. 1% gain. It's the outperformer, which has been a pattern lately. The S&P's up half a percent. The Nasdaq lagging again by about four-tenths of 1%. And it's a strange mix if you look at the sectors behind me in terms of the leadership board today. So energy is in the lead with a 3% gain. We did have some news flow out of OPEC saying they're going to extend the 10 million barrel per day cut. That's helping the sector. But utilities are up 2%. Real estate up 1.5%. More rate sensitive plays there. Uh, maybe we can divine. Meanwhile, to the downside, only two sectors are lower today and their technology down a third of a percent and materials down two thirds of one percent. So again, kind of a mixed bag, but broadly speaking, still a strong market. So here are a few companies in particular we're keeping an eye on and look at shares of Michaels up 43 percent today, just upgraded to overweight from neutral at J.P. Morgan on increased optimism about the pace of the economic recovery and on the valuation. Still, the shares are trading under eight dollars. Thor Industries, meanwhile, hitting a 52-week high on an earnings and revenue beat. The RV maker saw an increased pace in sales, including first-time buyers, since their dealerships reopened in May. Thor is up 13% today. And finally, shares of Duncan Brands are higher. They announced they will hire 25,000 new workers. And the stock is also getting an upgrade to overweight from sector weight at KeyBank. Duncan shares up nearly 3%. Today, Let's get over to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Mourners in Houston are filing by George Floyd's casket today as a six-hour public viewing is underway ahead of a private memorial tomorrow. In Minneapolis, former police officer Derek Chauvin, charged in Floyd's death, is set to appear in court this afternoon. And we have learned that George Floyd's brother, Philonise, is set to testify to a House panel on Wednesday. A campaign spokesperson says former Vice President Joe Biden does not believe the police should be defunded. But Biden supports the urgent need for reform through funding of community policing. And workers began removing 200 tons of charred scaffolding today from Notre Dame in Paris. It melted atop the cathedral in that fire which occurred last year. Progress on restoration, though, is continuing. That is the news update at this hour. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera. Still ahead on the exchange as the Big Apple begins to open its doors. What will it mean for the real estate market that's taken such a hit? We're going to ask one of the biggest players that owns the Empire State Building about business today. And as stocks continue to rally, some sectors are now trading at extreme levels. Could that be a good thing for long-term investors? The sectors and the opportunities are ahead. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. After being shut down for three months, New York City is entering phase one of its reopening plan today. Contessa Brewer is live in Brooklyn with the very latest for us. Contessa? Hi there, Kelly. Nearly a million people laid off in this city during the coronavirus crisis. And the mayor estimates as many as 400,000 could return to work today. Now, retail is allowed to have in-store pickup or curbside delivery. But as you can see here in Brooklyn, there are windows boarded up to protect against damage during civil unrest. Manufacturing can welcome their employees back today. And more than 33,000 construction sites that sat idle during the coronavirus crisis are allowed back in action today. It's a big boost for construction supply companies that laid off workers and saw business dwindle during the closures. I'm just happy to see the people coming back because, you know, you miss one or two paychecks, getting, trying to get unemployment, home, it's tough. But it's just getting back to see everybody in Brooklyn 
getting back in the workforce is a good thing. Masks, hand sanitizer, now part of construction supplies that get delivered. And the mayor and the governor say they are monitoring to see whether they can keep the viral caseload under control under this limited phase one before they launch into phase two. Kelly, it's loud with the sound of construction around here. Yeah, whoever thought uh, that would be so reassuring. Um, quick question, Contessa. Companies under phase one are still, there's not any major breakthroughs for the, for the office, right? I mean, they're still saying basically, I think, 25% capacity. Yeah, they're asking companies to keep their workers at home if they can work remotely. They're also saying if you need to bring people back, we want you to do it in a staggered way so they're not all hitting rush hour at the same time. So, for instance, the MTA was expecting some 85 percent of pre-pandemic levels this morning for the rush hour on the subway. Uh, they had seen it plummet to 90 percent during the height of the coronavirus. Wow. Also, Contessa, want to ask you about Las Vegas, where there were, there were crowds this weekend. Yeah, we saw some uh, videos posted on social media that really raised a lot of questions about social distancing. But remember, the guests are not required to wear masks in these Las Vegas casinos. They're being offered. Uh, we know that people who stayed at the Wynn, for instance, were offered, they said, continually throughout the resort, masks. And every time that they turned them down, the people were like, okay, then that's your choice. Uh, I reached out to the Cosmopolitan, which had, um, there was a video that was posted there that had millions and millions of views and asked them. They said that they were uh, exceeding the standards laid out by gaming regulators in terms of sanitation, masks for employees and social distancing. Yeah, but it, uh, I, I was shocked when you told me last week they didn't require masks and still sort of confused by it. Uh, we'll, we'll have more, though, Contessa. We'll follow it, obviously, in the next couple of weeks yeah. as it plays out there. Uh, we appreciate it. Contessa Brewers in Brooklyn with the latest on all of these reopening efforts. And my next guest owns more than 10 million square feet in the greater New York area. Most of that is across nine Manhattan office properties, including the world-famous Empire State Building, as well as 11 other retail and office buildings in the area. For more on the reopening process and the state of commercial real estate. I'm joined by Anthony Malkin, the chairman and CEO of Empire State Realty Trust. It's good to have you here, Anthony. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So, I mean, this is such a, a tricky issue. I guess your foremost concern has to be what does going to the office look like in the COVID era as people gradually do start coming back? And, and what does that look like? Well, I'm in my office right now. Uh, I've, I've been in the office regularly. Uh, I, I think that it's important to note we'll have safety protocols. We've already re-entered uh, employees of tenants into our buildings in Connecticut. Our, our motto here is be smart, be safe. We have certain expectations of us, tenants, guests, and vendors. We have PPE for our frontline personnel. Uh, we have PPE for our, 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 our cleaning people. Uh, we have requirements of our tenants uh, and their employees as well. Uh, we certainly have more cleaning. We've got decals to show where people are supposed to stand in the elevators. The good news is we've always uh, been modernizing our, uh, our portfolio. So even in the Empire State Building, even down to the observatory, we have MERV 13 filters. We have Atmos Air, which has proven to remove 99.92% of the COVID virus from the air. We have fresh air ventilation because that's the way our systems were installed and designed. If you realize we, have, we are number one in the industry as far as sustainability. Uh, we have the lowest carbon uh, footprint per square foot of any New York REIT, but also we focus on indoor environmental quality, which is playing out very well for us 
as we look at people in the return to the office. Yeah, and I know you're doing other things like temperature checks and food pickup will be different and all of those things. I wanted to ask about some of your tenants, though, um, because you had pointed out that LVMH is one of your tenants that stopped paying rent, I believe, in April. Um, have they restarted that process yet? We received their rent uh, for April and May and I believe June today. Oh, interesting. What does that tell you? Uh, it tells us, look, we started out with, with receivables at 69% for the month of March. We had a lot of different people come at us uh, for, for uh, requesting abatements, deferrals, not pay. Our number one focus is on the local businesses and the local retailers who are really hurt by the shutdown. And we have used them from our perspective to focus on uh, the, the, the fact that if they need help, we will give them help. Hmm. And the fact is, uh, we defer their rent. Uh, they'll go to percentage rent when we reopen, and we'll go to full rent when things restore to normal. But tenants who can afford to pay their rent, we expect to pay their rent. We're up to 80% collections prior to the LVMH uh, payment that we received this morning for the collection of the month of April. We're ahead of April for May, and the June collections are already in ahead of where we were in May. So we think that people are getting back in line. And, and you know, New York City, subways, I ride the subway, subways are clean. We have people commuting by train. The trains are clean. And uh, very happily, the order has uh, been restored. I don't think we've gotten beyond the issues that have raised the, the concerns. And that means it's, you know, marchers are not processed. We need to, the, the world needs to change, and it doesn't just change with point and click. We need tangible, logical engagement with yeah. government to uh, informed by the reality to improve the lot of people who have suffered and not been treated properly in this country. Yeah, and you're also bringing up kind of the issue about how desirable Manhattan in particular will remain as an office destination. I mean, that does seem like an open question. What it, there's, there's two hits here. One is what Kevin O'Leary keeps saying on our network, which is if he can reduce his office usage permanently across his portfolio, he can save a lot of cash. And so there are companies that might be permanently smaller in terms of their office needs. And then the other issue is, kind of specific to Manhattan. And if people feel like they'd rather be in a suburban office complex again, does that also put downward pressure on rents and demand? Well, first of all, we do have properties in the greater New York metro area as well. Uh, and there's always a yin and a yang between New York City and the suburbs. I, I would point out three things. Number one, uh, work from home is great for sustaining. Uh, you can't build. You can look what has happened with school from home. It doesn't work. Uh, if you want to have teams, if you want to have engagement, if you want to create new business, you need to be in the office. Uh, but I think that will come out more clearly as time goes forward. I think people want to be back in the office. We know, frankly, people want to be in the, back in the office. They don't want to die uh, from COVID. As far as the looting that occurred, this was a small group of extremely well-organized uh, criminals. Uh, the, the, the protesters have been, with rare exception, peaceful, logical, not quiet, very loud, uh, and they're protesting about things which matter and which are important and they have a right to be heard. Most of the boards that you see in New York City today, in Manhattan, do not cover stores which have been looted. The looters were very specific. They cover stores that don't want to be looted. Now that the curfew is off, now that we can see that the order has been restored, I think people will come back to New York. Don't write off New York. New York comes back from everything. All right. We'll leave it there. Anthony Malkin, thanks for your time today and for some insight into what's going on.
Thank you very much. He is the chairman and CEO of Empire State Realty Trust. And coming up, millions of jobs have been lost since America went under lockdown and implemented those social distancing guidelines. The Wall Street Journal's Greg Ibb tells us why all shutdowns are not created equal and the tactic he says could minimize both the loss of life and the loss of jobs if the pandemic returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to the exchange. Cities across the country, including New York, are reopening after being shut down for months due to the pandemic. My next guest says the economic toll of these shutdowns has been too high and that targeted shutdowns could stem future pain. Joining me now to explain is Greg Ip, the chief economics commentator at The Wall Street Journal. Greg, it's great to have you back. And so, first of all, what are we learning about the toll of the shutdowns in the first place? I mean, it seems pretty obvious. You know, a lot of people lost their jobs. But explain what you mean. Well, it's obvious that people lost their jobs, but it hasn't been obvious why they lost their jobs. We know that in pandemics, a lot of people won't go out, they'll stay home just because they're afraid of getting infected. So there's been this ongoing debate about whether, well, a lot of these states and countries that have not had lockdowns, their economies are going to suffer just as much because of those sort of voluntary social distancing. But if you look at the research that's coming out now, it's just not true. In my column, I specifically focused on this uh, study by a group of researchers at Indiana University. They looked at things like mobility data and Google searches for the words unemployment, and they found that when states had stay-at-home orders and they closed non-essential businesses, that had a clear and dramatic impact on unemployment. They think about 60% of the job losses we've experienced are because of state-mandated closures. So in other words, what we're learning is that the state-mandated closures had a huge impact on the number of job losses. But do we know if they necessarily were better in containing COVID than voluntary measures? We don't know that yet, and I think that's going to take more research. Um, and by the way, it might be the case that um, accepting a very large economic cost might have been worthwhile, depending on the value of the lives that are being saved. But I think the more relevant takeaway from this research, Kelly, is that lockdowns are a very blunt instrument, and they don't take into account many of the different risk profiles that we now know, thanks to research, are true. Just to take one example, since a very large portion of deaths take place in nursing homes and other sort of assisted care facilities, Focusing your resources on those organizations and the people who contact with them would have produced a lot more benefit in terms of health without all the concomitant loss of economic activity. So explain, for example, in the future, when we start to talk about a second wave or even just these kind of breakouts that are starting to happen in different parts of the country, what would a more targeted reaction look like that could do more to preserve employment? Well, I think, first of all, we do have limited testing and tracing capabilities, but focusing that testing and tracing capacity when those hotspots emerge would be very valuable. I think that's one of the things that we've learned. I think also realizing that we know that outdoor activity uh, shows much less risk of transmission than indoor activity. So you don't, for example, have to close all the parks, close all the walking trails and hiking trails. Another thing that we've learned is that children really do seem to be at much, much less risk of getting the disease and possibly of spreading the disease. It probably wasn't necessary to close all the schools as much as they have. But we do know that that's had a big negative impact on the livelihoods of people who serve the school system and on the education and the welfare of the children themselves. You should see the 30-point list I just got from the daycare, Greg, about, you know, all of the new policies and procedures. And I think to myself, you know, is it worth it? Is it, you know, what's kind of the bare minimum that would accomplish 90 percent of this without, you know, all the rest of it? 
am I insane for sending him there in the first place? I mean, I know these are the questions that everyone's grappling with, and, and it's people's individual decisions that are going to account for how many of these in industries go back to full employment. Oh, well, that's exactly right. Now, look, it is a completely normal, in fact, desirable human instinct that at the early stages of a disaster, when there's so much uncertainty, you overreact in the direction of being more safe. After 9-11, um, the Bush administration grounded every single airplane in the skies because they didn't know whether there were still terrorists on airplanes that were out there flying. We now know that there weren't, but nobody second guesses that decision. It was a fog of war. And similarly, it may have been necessary in the early days when we knew so little about the transmissibility and lethality of COVID-19 to take this one-size-fits-all approach. But that's just not true any longer. And we can be much more refined, much more targeted in the steps that we take. So quick final question. Let's say you're governor of New York, <laughs> Greg, and it's, you know, the autumn, uh, maybe it's next Jan or Feb, and the case count starts to rise again. What would your measures look like knowing what we know now? I think you throw, again, a lot of tracing and testing capability at those folks who may maybe consider some of the things that like South Korea has done, which is voluntary case isolation of people who are sick. And I think that you think twice before you just close down every business nearby. You focus on the ones where there are risks and you don't necessarily, and perhaps you can contain it to the zip codes where we know there's high mixing of individuals, but you don't necessarily um, extend it to the entire state. And I should mention, you guys also have a, a really interesting front page story today that points out um, transmission within homes where you have multi-generations living or homes that are crowded with more than one person in a room has been a big source of outbreaks, especially rural ones now. And implied in the article is that maybe it's a good idea to take people out of those homes and place them somewhere else. Could that be the kind of policy, you know, again, I don't mean forcibly take them. I, I think, you know, you'd have to say, yes, I'd like to go somewhere for care. And, and so I don't infect the other people living here. Yeah, I think so. Now, obviously, that'll have to take into account that a lot of people are reluctant to be separated from their families and there's no and coercion should be absolutely the very last resort in these situations. But just go back in history a little bit. We now know that when the New York state, when people, elderly people would be taken to the hospital because they were sick, they would be then sent back to the nursing home. We know that was a very bad thing to do, knowing what we know now. At a minimum, we can avoid those kinds of mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we can hope. Greg, thanks so much. Really penetrating right, stuff, me, Greg, it from the Wall Street Journal with the very latest there. Still ahead, forget Google or Bing. How about iSearch? One analyst says that Apple should consider buying its own search engine, and that's bad news for Google. He'll join us to explain ahead. Before we go to break, take a look at the Dow leaders today. Boeing is on top of the list again. It's up nearly 12% today. It's up 160% from the lows. Walgreens, Dow Inc., American Express, Travelers, all also adding to the gains today. With the Dow outperforming, we're up 293. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. Google pays Apple nearly $8 billion a year to be the default search engine on its products. But what if Google and its competitor, Microsoft Bing, decided it wasn't worth bidding for those devices? To avoid the fallout, my next guest says Apple should just buy its own search engine. Let's bring in Tony Sakanagi, the senior research analyst at Bernstein. Tony, I mean, this is such a, a fascinating headline, so we appreciate you joining us and, and, and talking about it. Um, so let's just start with what would prompt a move like this and why Google and Microsoft might not want to pay Apple for the privilege of being the default search engine anymore. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Kelly. Um, look, Google pays $8 billion a year and it ultimately generates, you know, we think $25 billion a year from search uh, on iOS, on Apple's operating system. 
And the reason it pays that much, we believe, is because if it doesn't, someone else like Microsoft might. And the worry, of course, if you're Apple is, let's say one day Microsoft says, look, search isn't that important to us. We have other priorities. In which case, there's no counter bill, hmm. uh, counter bid. And you know, Google could turn around and say, hey, we're only going to pay you half a billion Apple, and that would be very risky to Apple. And, and hence, you know, the question is, could you have a stocking horse? Is there something that, that Apple could do that would provide a inexpensive insurance policy uh, to keep, you know, Google and or Microsoft at the table bidding for this asset to be the default search engine on iOS? Right. And who is this ultimately meant to be in the interest of? So, Tony, in other words, is this Google paying for the privilege of making sure that they're the default on my iPhone because they want to reach me? And would they ever decide that was less important to them? Because it would seem like that's still a really important you know, market for them is to make sure I don't know what Apple's uh, the iPhone share of the U.S. market is, but, you know, to make sure that they are in front of all of those customers. Yeah. So so we believe that uh, mobile search is about 50 billion dollars a year for Google and uh, and about half of that comes through Apple devices. So so that's the price that that Google is is paying to have access to that. And and but it's not explicit you know, bid per se, we, we believe it's really predicated on someone else willing to pay more because, you know, right now, Apple doesn't really have a way of monetizing through search. It doesn't have, have a search engine. I suppose it could do partnerships with search engines, but they're really only two main search engines, which are Microsoft Bing and, and Google. Um, even DuckDuckGo, which is the asset that we suggest maybe Apple should consider buying, it really runs on the technology or the web crawling technology of Bing. Hmm. And so, you know, the, no, the notion ultimately is that, um, you know, this is a really tricky uh, three-legged stool. And it's really important because it contributes more than 10% of the operating profits of Apple that in the event that Microsoft were to de-emphasize search and Google said, hey, we can get away with paying less, what would Apple do to provide some kind of insurance policy? And right. that's, that's really where we're coming from. I also wonder what happened if Google just said, ah, you know, we're, we don't need to be on, on the iPhone. I mean, in other words, the user experience for me on Apple, the risk is that I'm forced to use more of their software products that I don't want to, right? We've seen this with Apple Maps. Um, I can tell you even anecdotally, I've switched off of Apple's mail app to the Outlook app. I've switched from using iPhoto to Google Photo. So, you know, it's interesting that on search, if Apple went with something inferior, I mean, if they went with Bing or with DuckDuckGo, which has a Bing-like feel to it, I don't know, would that push me to buy a, a Google phone? I mean, at some point, you know, I, I just don't want to lose the iMessage blue thing. I mean, they, they've got us all locked in with that, Tony. Well, you know, potentially they do. Um, but, you know, at least the work that we've done, we, we think Bing is, Microsoft's invested a lot in Bing and is a cre increasingly credible alternative to, uh, to Google. And if you run queries on Bing, uh, they, they come back almost identical, not only in content, but interestingly in form. And in fact, it, it's very difficult to distinguish whether a search has been run uh, with Bing in a mobile operating system or, um, or with Google. Hmm. And so, 
you know, look, there's there's a debate. Google could say, look, we have the best search engine around. We have a great brand. Why should we pay eight billion? Right. Whatever's on the Apple phone, people will change it. Right. But the risk, of course, is there's a great inertia. And if Bing is pretty good and it looks very similar or DuckDuckGo is very good and it looks very similar ultimately to Google, then that's a risk they run that, hey, maybe people will stick with whatever default is, is put on the phone. And so right now they're saying, hey, it's worth our paying $8 billion a year. That's $8 billion in lost profit to Google to ensure that we have access to that search stream. Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating. One final question that kind of comes back to add price. Apple's trading around $331 this afternoon. Your price target is 285 So, you know, do you feel comfortable with Apple at these levels? There are other, plenty of other people on the street who have price targets even higher uh, from here. Why don't you think that's justified necessarily? Well, Kelly, the market's run up you know, 35% off its lows. We don't change our price target, um, you know, every couple of weeks and the market's gone up 10%. When we last set our price target, it was above Apple's. As the market goes up, the, the, the currency for all stocks go up. Um, so I, I, would, I would just say that the price target is somewhat dated, set at a market level that is lower. We think the risk reward for Apple in the near to medium term through the product launch in September, October of the new iPhone is still uh, somewhat positive. All right. And I will be waiting to see if Apple, if I see Apple DuckDuckGo headline, at least now I'll know exactly what's <laughs> going on. Tony, thanks so much. It's good to have you today. Thanks for having me. Tony Sakanagi is Apple's uh, analyst over at Bernstein. Coming up, stocks are climbing higher once again with the Nasdaq at a fresh all-time intraday high. And with the recent rally, a number of sectors are very stretched. Could that be good for long-term investors? We will have those details next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are rallying again with the S&P higher for the sixth time in seven trading days, and it's now flat on the year, and the Nasdaq is up 10%. According to Bespoke's trend analyzer, all but two of the major index ETFs are now at extreme overbought levels. Joining me to explain uh, more about that is Paul Hickey. He's the co-founder of Bespoke Investment Group. Paul, welcome. And uh, tell me about sort of who all is overbought and by how much. Well, I mean, I think the better question would be, Who's not overbought? Uh, over the last week, over the last weekend, we were looking at the S and P 500 stocks. Since March 23rd, only one stock is down, and um, and only eight stocks are up less than 10 percent. So just about everything's overbought at this at this point. In the S and P 500, where we had a situation that coming into today, 86 percent of the stocks in the S and P 500 were trading one standard deviation above their 50-day moving average which is the level that we consider overbought, uh, so to speak. So okay, when we look back at that, go ahead. we see a high level there. Yeah, so, um, you know, what, what, what does this mean going forward? Short-term returns um, tend to be mixed, but going back to 1990, we've only seen 80% of plus of stocks at overbought levels three other times, February 91, uh, June 2003, and then October 2011. Uh, a month later, you saw the S&P down twice, up once, but three, six, and 12 months later, uh, we were up every time with better than average returns. And so what we're seeing with a lot of these big uh, measuring this rally you've seen in a number of different ways is following these historical surges, we tended to see uh, gains you know, going forward, looking out six to 12 months. That's so fascinating because you could easily imagine a world in which, you know, you come on and say, hey, Kelly, everything's overbought and you know what that means, we're going down. But instead, as we learn from these markets, it seems that strength begets strength. Ironically, things can be overbought, maybe have a small correction, but then continue to move higher. So, you know, I, I guess that 
tells us all we need to know about how strong the momentum can be for this market in the back half of the year. Yeah, I, I think so. And what you tend to see sometimes with the, these rallies, you can have corrections in price and in time. So sometimes it just takes a little bit of time for the market to work off, uh, you know, the extreme moves and, and rest uh, for, for another move higher. Obviously, looking forward here, though, I mean, this a lot is going to depend on this whole, you know, what happens with the virus going forward in the summer and into the fall. Right now, the market's pricing in a pretty, you know, you know, an eventual recovery to normal. Uh, so anything uh, that takes us off that kilter could be problematic. But yeah. just the way we're looking at things right now, uh, just the history suggests that, like you said exactly, Kelly, strength begets strength. So we only have a little bit of time. The only thing that makes me nervous now is how uniformly positive everybody seems to be on the market. But I want to mention a couple of stocks in particular that you've mentioned that could be attractive here. Sonos, Chegg and Copa Airlines, you know. Why? I mean, you can pick one or if they kind of all share a characteristic, Paul. I mean, are these places that people can look if they feel like they've missed the rebound? Well, I think real quickly, uh, Sonos, a lot of consumers are, you know, have, have gotten sim- stimulus and the jobs market is better than it's looking than, than we thought. So you're, you're seeing uh, some consumers are flush with cash here and they can't go anywhere. So what are you going to do? You're going to improve your entertainment at home. Sonos just released uh, a new platform for their uh, home speaker system. Yeah. Uh, it just came out today. And so that's a stock. It's almost a stay at home play there. And Chegg education being disrupted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and then finally, just I know we're short on time. Copa Airlines, the Latin American airline, it's still down over 50 percent. Um, like other airlines, it's rallied, but it has a very strong balance sheet. And so even in a prolonged uh, suppression of, of airline activity, yeah. it, it has the best potential to make it forward and then pick up share from when its competitors uh, run into problems. Well, we got it all in, Paul, and I learned something. So thank (laughs) you, sir, as always. Paul Hickey from Bespoke Group. And that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.